everybody, how's it going? This is Hub, and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I may have just mentioned, my name's Hub, and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you end up listening to this. Me? I'm doing okay. Both Lisa and I have changing employment situations coming up, and it's been a little bit stressful, so we've been dealing with that by watching a little television program called The Good Witch. I don't know if you're familiar with this show, but it's, uh, well, it's not really a bad show so much as it is barely a show. It's kind of like Law & Order if there were no crimes and no lawyers and no cops and nothing happened. I think in early episodes there was maybe some hand-waving about the fact that maybe the main character was a witch, but now she's just a lady who smiles knowingly a lot. It's a program that I'm almost certain is made for and by lavender-scented candles. Oh, and the lady who plays the busybody, well-intentioned mayor uh, did the voice of Jean Grey in the X-Men cartoon. Anyway, the point is, my brain is tapioca, and I love this program very, very much. But you didn't come here to hear me talk about the Good Witch. Although, if you wanted to, maybe that could be arranged. Could call the show The Good Watch. Hmm. Well, for the time being anyway, this show is still about comic books. So, without any further ado, let's... Uh, do this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Eric Engelhard. Night nurses, the best fictional healthcare sis. Now it's time for Hub's clinical synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Eric. Defenders, number 54, December 1977. A study in survival. Written by David Anthony Kraft, drotted by Keith Giffen and Michael Golden, Inked by Bob McLeod, lettered by Bruce Patterson, colored by David Anthony Kraft, and edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive lineup Namor the Submariner, The Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Hellcat, and The Red Guardian, maybe. Previously in The Defenders. Several months ago, Dr. Tanya Belinsky, a.k.a. the Red Guardian, began receiving phone calls threatening that if she did not return home to the USSR, her family would suffer dire consequences. Oh no! Those are the worst kind of consequences. Reluctantly, the sartorially scarlet Soviet superhero returned to Russia. As soon as she arrived at the airport, Belinsky was kidnapped and brought to the secret underground lair of a creepy science jerk named Sergei. The science jerk in question had been doing nuclear nonsense to himself, which had made him all radioactive. These experiments had also granted him the ability to do mind control, but apparently not the ability to understand how codenames work, because Sergei had adopted the imaginative nom de guerre, codename Sergei. The stupidly pseudonymed Slavic scientist informed the Red Guardian that he had been stalking her for years and decided that she should be his mate. Gross! 
Tanya attempted to escape from her crummily codenamed captor and beat up several of his minions, but Sergei jammed a device onto her head which made her more susceptible to his already formidable mind control powers and mentally commanded the crimson-clad communist crime fighter to knock it off and also to be in love with him. What a piece of shit! Codenamed Shithead went on to inform his now pliant prisoner of his further plans. The radioactive Russian reprobate intended to inflict an array of atomic experiments on himself and Tanya that would culminate with the two of them standing in the middle of a nuclear explosion and gaining superpowers together. What a terrible plan! Meanwhile, in the undersea kingdom of Atlantis, Sergei's subterranean nuclear tomfoolery was having some unintended consequences. Radiation had been leaking from the site of the underground experiments and was poisoning the surrounding ocean. Fearing for the safety of his subjects, Namor went to New York City to enlist the aid of the superhero community. Unfortunately for the abdominally adroit Atlantean, the Avengers, Fantastic Four, and X-Men were busy. So, after an issue-long kerfuffle with the Hulk, the Abs, salute ruler of the deep, had to settle for the Defender's assistance. The Hulk, Nighthawk, and Hellcat piled into Namor's submarine and headed towards Atlantis. Valkyrie was unable to join her teammates in their subaquatic sojourn because she was attempting to enroll in classes at Empire State University. Alas, academic bureaucracy proved to be the one foe that the sorcerously Scandinavian swordslinger was unequal to the task of defeating, so Val consoled herself by going to the movies with some eccentric film students she met at a campus cafe. While their Asgardian ally was seeking cinematic solace, the rest of the Defenders made a brief pit stop in Atlantis, where they were treated to a dramatic PowerPoint presentation while their vehicle was outfitted with improved radiation shielding. The next day, the quartet of crime fighters and the crew of their amphibious assault vehicle sped towards the source of the contamination that was imperiling Atlantis, but as they approached codename-slash-actual-name Sergei's lab, the vessel was rocked by the force of a nearby nuclear explosion. Our heroes were too late. Sergei's experiments were complete. The Soviet stalker-slash-scientist had detonated an underground atomic bomb that had ravaged much of Eastern Europe. From the epicenter of the explosion, Sergei and the Red Guardian emerged, crackling with newfound nuclear energy. Sergei soliloquized that from now on he would be known as... The Presence. Gad, Zooks! What startling new powers does The Presence possess? Excluding the college admissions process, is there any other obstacle Valkyrie is unequal to the task of overcoming? And after displaying surprising composure in the face of a prolonged underwater journey, politely sitting through a PowerPoint presentation, and getting caught in yet another nuclear explosion, is anything still capable of triggering the Hulk's anger? Stay tuned to find out. Okay, so too soon to tell, but given his ignorance in matters pertaining to codenames consequences, and consent, hopefully the ability to comprehend subjects starting with the letter C, politely pretending to enjoy an acquaintance's student film, and, yup, Kyle's bullshit. So, it turns out that having your submarine get caught in the blast zone of an atom bomb kinda sucks. Who'da thunk it? The defenders try their best to rescue the crew and keep the vessel from sinking, but to little avail. The ship's hull is breached, and before long, the entire crew, including our heroes, are swept underwater. This isn't a real problem for Namor, or presumably the other Atlanteans, and the Hulk is able to hold his breath pretty much indefinitely, but Nighthawk and Hellcat aren't quite so fortunate. Kyle bonks his head and is knocked out almost immediately. 
Fortunately, Patsy is able to swim over and jam a scuba helmet over the snoozing superhero's head, but, unfortunately, this act of heroism is all she is able to do before she herself runs out of air. Back in New York, Valkyrie has just successfully completed the seemingly Sisyphean task of enrolling in classes at Empire State University. Hooray! One of the film students with which she had recently acquainted herself, a garrulous beardy guy named Dollar Bill, invites her up to his place to watch some movies with him. Having very much enjoyed her first film-going experience the previous evening, Valkyrie accepts the offer at face value. Shockingly, when Val arrives at her hirsute host's apartment, she finds that his intention is to actually watch a movie with her. Wow. College sure has changed a lot since the 70s. Dollar Bill fires up his projector and begins a private screening of a student film he has made chronicling the details of his startling origin story. As the exposition unfolds, we learn the stupefying fact that Dollar Bill is a rich kid who likes movies. Wow! What a reveal! I'm pretty sure that's the startling origin story of like 98% of Hollywood directors. Val found Bill's tale of triumph over no adversity whatsoever somewhat less than compelling, and fell asleep about ten minutes in. To be fair, she may have thought she was watching the Kyle Richmond story at first, and kind of tuned out before it got to the exciting, liking movies part of Bill's backstory. While Valkyrie is snoozing on a co-ed's couch, Jack Norris, the estranged husband of Barbara Norris, whose body is the current host for the sorcerously created persona Valkyrie, is happily driving around town. The connubially confused creep is conspicuously content because he has just decided that he should join up with S.H.I.E.L.D. He probably shouldn't, because he would make a great super spy. He definitely wouldn't. Suddenly, the matrimonially-minded meathead has a realization that turns his frown right side up. He has no idea how to find S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, and therefore is unable to apply for a job. Hooray! Back in the newly radioactive waters of the Black Sea off the coast of Russia, the Defenders are still having a pretty rough go of it. A giant evil sea monster has been awakened by the explosion and is grabbing Hellcat's leg and trying to pull her down to the murky depths of the sea floor. Fortunately, Namor is around and snatches his feline friend from the Leviathan's grasp, safely depositing her on the floating wreckage of our hero's demolished craft. The Hulk spots an unconscious Kyle floating around and has to make a tough decision. On the one hand, Kyle is in trouble and will likely die without assistance. On the other hand, he's Kyle. Hmm. Tough choice. Eventually, Hulk decides to rescue the beleaguered billionaire duel, and soon the quartet of crime fighters are reunited on the flotsam that was once their state-of-the-art conveyance. After a few minutes, the Hulk spots a nearby island, and over the objections of his fellow castaways, leaps from their makeshift raft. The Hulk easily makes the journey to the coast in a single bound. Unfortunately, when the Jade Giant pushed off of the detritus that was so recently our hero's salvation, the ship's husk was completely destroyed, and, much to their chagrin, the Hulk's non-teammates were dumped once more into the briny deep. Whoops! Namor grabs Kyle with one hand and Hellcat with the other, and takes to the sky, following Hulk to the barren shore the bounding behemoth had just fled to. 
As our airborne adventurers pursue their Emerald Amigo, the captions inform us that while our heroes seem safe, the entire region and any seeming survivors are in fact doomed to die a slow, painful death from radioactive fallout from the nuclear blast. Well, that certainly puts a damper on things. Bummer. When our heroes are yet again reunited, Kyle gets all lippy with the Hulk, and the Hulk yells at him and calls him stupid. Hooray! Unfortunately, before the Hulk can serve his entitled frenemy an enormous green knuckle sandwich, their impending dust-up is interrupted by the unexpected aerial arrival of the glowing golden fuckwad now known as... The Presence! And slightly behind him, still mind-controlled but now crackling with atomic energy, the being once known as... The Red Guardian! who I guess is still known as the Red Guardian. But now she's all glowing and mind-controlled. Then we get a backup story. Fury Times Five. Written by Scott Edelman. Drotted by Juan Ortiz. Inkeded by Bruce Patterson. Lettered by Howard Bender. Colored by Ken Klaxack. And edited by Archie Goodwin. Defensive Lineup. Nick Fury. Nick Fury is strolling down the halls of S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters, probably congratulating himself on not telling Jack Norris where he can be found, when he spots a grinning nincompoop named Clay Quartermain. Only it turns out that it isn't actually grinning nincompoop Clay Quartermain after all, but rather a robotic duplicate of the grinning nincompoop in question. S.H.I.E.L.D. is lousy with these robots, which they call Life Model Decoys, or LMDs for short. They use them for spy stuff and for retconning away inconvenient deaths. Suddenly, Nick is attacked by four LMDs that look just like him, two of which are clad only in underpants for some reason. Fury defends himself against these mechanical doppelgangers, but he's pretty outnumbered. A hooded figure appears in the glass booth above Nick and informs the monocular super spy that it is his intention to murder Fury and replace him with an LMD that will do his bidding. Fair enough. Nick disarms one of his robotic assailants and uses the weapon to turn out the lights for a second. When the shadowy architect of Fury's doom turns the power back on, he finds that the OG Fury has stripped down to his skivvies to better blend in with the perfidious pantsless androids who have been attacking him. The masked Machiavellian mastermind behind the automaton assassins turns off the LMDs so that the real Nick Fury will be exposed. But uh-oh, masked Machiavellian mastermind, that was exactly what the actual Nick Fury wanted you to do. Nick uses his now-defunct half-naked robot doubles as a particularly unsettling pommel horse, vaults into the masked jerkhole's booth, and punches his mysterious nemesis right in the face. Hooray! When the victorious World War II veteran turned Cold War spy makes like Fred from Scooby-Doo and unmasks his incognito enemy, he finds that he has met the enemy, and it is him. That's right, the architect of Nick Fury's facsimile foes was yet another LMD duplicate of Nick Fury. What? Still clad only in his government-issue underpants, Fury places a call to the actual Clay Quartermain and informs the grinning nincompoop that S.H.I.E.L.D. has got themselves some robot problems. Could be worse. Jack Norris could have showed up for his job interview. And 
joining us once again is my good for many things brother Corey. Corey, how are you doing? Hey, I am doing fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Good. Are you enjoying your Cordell? I am. It is got quite a kick. Uh-huh. I made us some drinks that are uh, very easy to make. It's bullet bourbon and peach lemonade. And I call them the Cordell in honor of Cordell Walker. Uh... Chuck Norris's character from Walker, Texas Ranger. Because they're surprisingly sweet, but they've got quite a kick. Just like Cordell. Just like Cordell Walker. Mm. Yeah, how, how have you been? I've been pretty good. It's nice and sunny here, and not too hot, unlike much of the rest of the country, which I hear is too hot. So, sorry guys yeah. and gals that are experiencing that. Yeah. Stay cool, stay inside, and... Be safe. Make yourself a Cordell. Yeah, have a Cordell. It's a great way to beat the heat. We beat the heat. Lisa and I went to the Oregon coast uh, for her birthday the other day. That's nice. It was a very nice time. We ate some Chiapino. We walked on the beach. We made fun of a bird. It was a great time. Oh, the best of times. I love seeing animals, especially birds, do a bad job. <laughs> yeah, this fucking seagull. <laughs> he was trying to fly, but it was really windy, so he wasn't going anywhere. Just flapping his stupid bird wings like an idiot. <laughs> it guy. was great. It was very uh, romantic. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Speaking of good, maybe. You want to talk about this comic book? Sure. So, what'd you think of this comic book? I liked it. Not a lot actually happened in terms of a story unfolding, but it was riveting. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. Yeah, you, like you said, not a ton happened. The pacing on it kind of reminded me of like, you remember Evil Dead 2? Sort of. It's been a while. A so there was while. the progression with the Evil Dead trilogy mm -hmm. where the second movie, the first like half of the movie was a remake of the first movie. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what happened in this book. Mm -hmm. Like the last issue, they're going to fight the underwater radiation thing. Operation Sergei blows up his nuclear bomb and gets powers. Yep. And at the end, they're about to confront him. Mm -hmm. This issue, that's pretty much what happens. Basically a recap for the first, like, half of the book, really. And then their ship gets destroyed and they have to rescue each other. And then we end up basically right at the same point. It makes me wonder if the next issue, they'll go back in time and have to fight some medieval knights and shit. Oh, could be. Because in Army of Darkness, the yeah. first, like, three minutes of the movie is a remake of the first two movies. Well, yeah, just, you know, catch them up. Yeah. But yeah, I, like I said, overall, still pretty fun. Did have a little bit of a deep blue sea feel to it. Oh. Kind of. Not in that there was intelligent Alzheimer medicine sharks <laughs> trying to get to you, but, like... What does fucking Hollywood have against curing Alzheimer's? I don't know, man, but... But between Planet of the Apes and Deep Blue Sea, we're really apparently not supposed to do that shit. No, no, there's something <laughs> going on there, but this more so, the comparison is that... Yeah, you know, like Hulk really points out, like, I don't like the water. Why the fuck did I go <laughs> under it so deeply? And <laughs> now we can't breathe. Now LL Cool J's gonna fucking kill us. Oh wait, no, LL Cool J didn't kill them at the end. He just had a rap where that was from the perspective of one of the sharks that was trying to kill them. It's an easy confusion. Yeah, to make. in the movie, LL Cool J was a gourmet cook who was a recovering alcoholic who had a pet parrot who he was obsessed with keeping, 
who he had one other like big personality trait and it's a really good thing he did because no one else in the movie had any personality traits whatsoever. Yeah. But LL, my man, yeah. pulled it off. He was enough for everybody. Mm-hmm. Making it making it a movie you can watch. Indeed. Thanks, LL Cool J. This Cordell's for you. The cover of this issue is fucking gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It is once again by George Perez. The last issue, I was like, oh, that's really pretty. It didn't seem quite in the Perez style. This one is 100% just like mature Perez looking. It's really cool. It's interesting to me, too, because this, when you say mature Perez looking, this is 1977. Yeah. I'm used to him from about about 10 years ahead of that. But uh, yeah, no, this is definitely in that Defenders kind of style, but his style, too. It's really great. The rest of the art in the book, pretty good, too. It's a combination of Keith Giffen and Michael Golden doing the pencils, and I really like Mike Golden. Um, We end up with a kind of more Golden Age-looking Namor than I think we're used to, but still really good interiors, and I think where you see the Michael Golden touches are with the kind of technology that you see depicted with the Atlantean shit. And it's, it's nice. I liked it. I liked it, too. Although, I gotta say, I would have liked to see Namor be a little more Namor-y. Maybe it's just because he wasn't speaking too much because he was busy trying to keep people from drowning and everything. But Yeah, I mean, he was displaying a different side of Namor, which I think we still do see. I think maybe when he's underwater, he's... No, I'm, re- I'm thinking back to some Namor stories that I read. When he's underwater, he's just as dramatic and arrogant. Oh, yeah. But he is showing that he is like a leader and a monarch. He comes across as very regal in this, but you're right, he doesn't have the same, like, irascibility that we're used to seeing from him. Characters who act very much like themselves, though. Nighthawk is the nighthawkiest nighthawk we've seen in a while. That is exactly what I mean by that. Fart noise. Hmm. Fart noise all the way for Nighthawk. Fuck that guy. (laughs) When he's tugging at the sides of the ship, like, he uh, he and Hellcat are, like, basically holding a clothesline in place that some Atlanteans are hanging on to. And he says something along the lines of, I feel like we're the only ones holding this boat together. No, that's not what you're doing at all. Way to make yourself sound important, dude. Do you think that was a miscommunication between the art and letters department? Or do you think that was just Kyle? <laughs> just like... I think that's just Kyle being Kyle. Uh I'm the one who's maintaining the integrity of the ship by... This is a load-bearing clothesline. Apparently, yeah. (laughs) That I'm tugging on. What a dummy. Yeah. His dumbness is surpassed by my other least favorite person in this franchise. Oh, man. Jack motherfucking (laughs) Norris. Yeah, can we take a minute to talk about what a dummy he is? (laughs) What a fucking idiot. My notes... (laughs) He's like that seagull. (laughs) He absolutely... Just beating his wings... Into the air. Not going anywhere. Not doing it. He's driving around in his car, (laughs) which I really enjoyed. It was a nice touch that the windshield of it is still cracked from his previous escapades. I like those weird little touches of continuity when we see them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder at what what point that was added. The writer, David Kraft, in this is also the colorist. Mm. It seemed like more than a color thing, but it also did seem like the kind of touch that Kraft would add later. So I wonder if that was something that he threw in. But, yeah, he's driving around in his fucking fancy spy car that he bought with the money that 
he extorted from Kyle for going for, away. For saying he would go away. <laughs> Which, man, he should really continue tapping that resource. I'm sure there are a lot of people who would pay Jack Norris to go away. That is a much better field of employment for him than... Spycraft. Spycraft, which yeah. he is terrible at. He thinks he's the best. We <laughs> also learned that. He's so excited. He thinks he's going to be so good at it. He's always wanted to be a spy. He forgot that one time he did, did it and did it. And was awful job. at it. Yeah. yeah. I think forgetting that he is awful at things may be Jack Norris's superpower. That's a not a bad one to have. It's it, a pretty bad one to have. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I don't know. I just... I know a lot of people... I mean... Are there people... There may be happier, but I do know a lot of people who are very bad at things that they do not know they are very bad That's what bad. I was getting at, was that sense of everything's right in the... Like, as long as, like, you can maintain, you know, the, your basic needs... Delusional and, entitlement as a superpower? I don't know about entitlement. Yeah, I guess I'm just thinking it would be nice to not have to... You know, worry about not being good Complete at stuff. Complete lack of self-consciousness. It would be... I, I'm not saying it wouldn't be fun. Yeah, it's probably just really a drag for everybody around you. Yeah. Okay, never mind. <laughs> Bad superpower, <laughs> Norris. Yeah, because he forgets completely that he has no way of getting in touch with S.H.I.E.L.D. It makes me wonder if Nick Fury offered him that job as a prank. He's like, oh, hey, yeah, you should totally sign up with us. Um, well, gotta go. Oh, you forgot to give me your number. Gotta go. And that comes up in Norris's thought process. He's like, well, I've seen Nick Fury a couple times, <laughs> so I should totally be able to find him. I'll just keep driving. So it's either a prank or that is S.H.I.E.L.D.'s vetting process for their potential spies. If you can find if us. If you can find us. Mm. <laughs> if you can afford it and you can find us. Maybe you can hire S.H.I.E.L.D. Dun, 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 yeah, that's dun, how their thing goes. Yeah. So, yeah, maybe it is just like that is the application process. If you can find their secret headquarters, then maybe you can be a spy for them. If so, I would say they are probably safe from hiring Jack Norris. Mm -hmm. I think we're all safe from that. Yeah, he is so much better off just sticking to having people pay him to go away. Mm -hmm. Speaking of which, I might be looking for work soon. If you'd like to pay me to go away... I'm accepting offers. TTWasteland at gmail.com Speaking of people who suck, we've talked about Nighthawk. Mm -hmm. We've talked about Jack Norris. Mm -hmm. Sergey, the presence. That guy just keeps sucking and keeps getting worse and keeps getting creepier. And it's written in a way that I wonder if we are supposed to identify with him a little bit more. The way that it is written... Part where he's talking about his desire for Belinsky to like him a lot. Yeah. Yeah, that was creepy as hell. It's super creepy, and I don't know if it's supposed to come across that oh, he's way. He's supposed to sound crazy. No? He, I think so, but it is also the kind of thing where, especially from fiction from this era, I think it's supposed to be trying to create some pathos for him. And... It's like some little part the reader can identify with? Not necessarily. Yeah, I think partly identify with, but also just like, oh, he just wants to be loved. Mm. I'll just read some of the dialogue. Tentatively, Sergei reaches out for Tanya's hand. He would like them to be legendary lovers. He wants her to adore him the way Juliet adored Romeo. He wants her to seduce him the way that Cleopatra seduced Antony. He wants the purity of great passion to consume her even as the inferno does now. 
But the way he is going about that is mind-controlling her and turning her into a puppet who will say that she loves him and has no free will. And it's incredibly creepy. And it is creating a pathetic character in that he is a creepy fucking turd bag, but it is not creating actual pathos for him. And I don't know to what extent it's supposed to be creating pathos for him. Unfortunately, I suspect it is trying to do that. That's uh, not super well executed. No, but I wonder if it came across better at that time. Especially it is geared towards adolescent boys who are at that weird stage of development where it's like a mix of horny and lonely and confused and angry. And you don't yet have the experience of how things actually go, you, you know? So the idea that you could mind control somebody into... Into loving you. Loving you is... Seems appealing person, on a certain you know? level. I, I don't know. I don't know. I thought where you were initially going with this was... And this was in 1977, a time when everybody was worse. You know, because there's that aspect to it. There, too, there is that aspect to it culturally, where I, I think that th those sentiments were... Not that they're not still accepted, but they were maybe less examined then. But yeah, it, it's super creepy, and I, I really I really don't like that aspect of the story. Boo! Bad job, codename, colon, Sergey. Yes. Okay. Stupid name still. Codename, colon, fuckface. Aha. Uh -huh. That's his new name. CCFF. Mm-hmm. There is also a weird, like, kind of fatalistic tone to at least half of the comic book. Because it establishes, with the caption work, fairly early on that all of the main characters of the Defenders, with the exception of Valkyrie, who's still in New York, are going to die of radiation poisoning. And that what they are doing is essentially futile. Which is interesting. I'm sure there'll be some DSX machina that will get rid of that. I mean, maybe Red Guardian, she's got to break the mind control, right? Yeah, because they did some foreshadowing of, like... The small part in her mind. Little, yeah, a little peep yeah. of, like, hey, this is super creepy. Yeah, and then the fuck that shit. Yeah, and then, oh, never mind, I'm controlled again. But it's, if they put that in there, it means, like, next issue, she's gonna be, like... Yeah, I, I sure hope so. And so, like, maybe just the level of omnipotence that she and the Presence have, uh, they'll be able to undo all of the... Take away all, all the radiation. All of the radiation poisoning. But it is something that I kind of like in the characters that they know they are doomed, but they keep fighting. It's kind of like Norse mythology, where, like, you know Ragnarok's coming, but that doesn't mean that you don't do your best. And there's something, there's kind of an inherent nobility in that. And I like, especially from Namor, seeing that I know this is a doomed effort, but I'm still going to fight to protect my people. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of the, I don't know, did you watch any of the Chernobyl show? I haven't. It's pretty heavy, but there's like, there were these miners. I didn't know this part from the, obviously the news coverage that we right. had as kids, but they had the, basically a bunch of coal miners went and dug a thing under the power plant to keep it from blowing up and like destroying wow. a lot of the uh, ecosystem in the Western hemisphere. And um, they, of course, it was a total right. suicide mission. They all knew they were going to die and they went in there and they did it anyway Man. it was pretty heavy yeah so not unlike the defenders yeah i mean you know except for for real life <laughs> yeah wow that is very impressive and certainly not in line with what patty's ex-husband would say about communists no though i do wonder what buzz did have to say <laughs> it's 
probably pretty choice. I'm sure it was. Buzz is a character who exists, is a holdover and definitely a rewriting of when Patsy Walker was a almost Archie style character from uh, the 50s and 60s. Hmm. Um, she was friends with Millie the model and it was this whole line of comics that were like funny romance comics where the art style was kind of similar to the Archie comics too. But... I mean, kind of like the Riverdale series now, they rebooted them all into the Marvel Universe uh, as it existed in the 70s with Patsy Walker. And uh, I think Millie the Model ended up being Jean Grey's roommate for a while (laughs) and kind of made them more like melodramatic. And they turned to Buzz, who had been her like, I think kind of doofy but sweet boyfriend, into like an ultra all-American to the point of parody and real asshole dude, mm. which I think is a really interesting choice. And I'm looking forward to seeing more of Buzz and hearing about his bullshit. Man, I, speaking of Hellcat, I really like her in this issue. And here we have an example of somebody who does something that Beast Boy does, but does it in a way that it can be likable and, and great, which is when faced with stress, crack jokes. Yeah. But, you know, not in a harassy, gross, <laughs> shitty, yeah. gross way. Yeah. No, she's she was hilarious. I, I liked her. Yeah, and I, I, I appreciated the nods that they had there, too, that this is how she deals with a stressful situation, is by making jokes and putting on false bravado, but in a really charming way. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she's like the anti-Beast Boy in so many ways. Yep. Man, he could learn a thing. No, he couldn't. That's the sad That's part. That's the problem. <laughs> That is the fucking problem. But this is not He about should it. learn a thing. He should. What'd you think of the dollar bill digression? I thought that was pretty great. It was weird. Uh, I, I liked it. There was this one half panel where you see Val. Dollar Bill has just invited her back to his apartment. And what she says is, and what would we do there? And there's this like half smile on her face. She's often portrayed as just, like, a totally naive character. And in that moment, you almost see her just leaning into that and just being like, oh, and what would we do there? Like, it comes across as knowing and condescending to Bill in a way that she's like, and he's not going to get that I totally know what he's after. Mm -hmm. And it's all done with this, like, quarter turn of her face. It's really neat. And it definitely seems like that was more the artist's choice than the writer's choice. And then you get, he, he's like, well, we'll watch movies. And the movie that they watch is a silent movie which he narrates that is a documentary that he has made about himself. When I was watching that, I had not realized that Dollar Bill was very wealthy. His name should have been a decent clue as to that. It also does something where it reveals his backstory in a kind of clever way. Because if you have a character just giving you an exposition dump of their backstory, it's my automatic assumption that they're a supervillain. Mm-hmm. It's just such a like classic supervillain move to just like, and here's an exposition dump about my origin. And it's so ingrained that even though it was done through the filter of this documentary that he had made, there was part of me that was just like, wait a minute, is Dollar Bill lunatic? Oh, shit. I don't think he is. He isn't. They look different. Yeah, but, I mean, you know, it could be a disguise. How is he going to cover that beard? I don't know. And go without those trademark sunglasses. He's had them since he was a baby. He did have sunglasses when he was a baby. So the other thing that the flashback, or not even a flashback, the documentary about Dollar Bill that we watched, 
it made me draw all of these parallels to, wait a minute, is he supposed to be like a teenage version of Richie Rich who grew up? He's got the dollar sign on his sweatshirt. He's got Butler towing him around on a money train. Like, is he like Richie Rich who wasn't murdered as a child and grew up to be a teenage hippie who never got killed in a terrible passion and turned into Casper the Ghost? Yeah, it's probably something like that. I think that's probably it. There, there was one, like, clue where I was like, oh, is this actually making a nod to him being Richie Rich, in which he talked about his girlfriend, Penelope? And I was like, oh, like, Penny. Did Richie Rich have a love interest named Penny? Totally seemed like he should have. He didn't. Yeah. I was so disappointed. I, I had to look it up. His, it was, like, Gladys Glad or something like that, or Gloria Glad. And I was like, oh. Missed that opportunity. Like really missed opportunity. Mm. Should have had a girlfriend named Penny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also liked Val's reaction to his hubris. Which was falling asleep. Just to go to sleep. Yeah. And then his reaction to that was also pretty great. Where there's enough ego, he gets upset, but he's not mean about it. He's more so just like, ah, oh, nuts. Or he's, he doesn't say that, but yeah. something like that. But he's, he's more upset that, uh, I guess he loaded the film wrong because now the film is, is falling on the floor. And is getting off of the projector and he's worried that this brilliant three minute silent documentary that he spent the last eight years. More than eight years because it has footage of him as a baby. Like, well, this is his he, boyhood. He didn't work on it since he was a baby. Huh? <laughs> I think he might have. I don't think that's possible. Do you think he hired a baby and put sunglasses on it and a silver spoon in its mouth oh, as like an art no, project? No, no, I think he got footage that of his like parents his parents' had. home movies. Yeah. Or like, this baby's wearing sunglasses. And there's no YouTube yet. Right? We gotta hang on to this shit. Exactly. Yeah, maybe you're right. You wanna talk about the backup story? Sure. <laughs> I love this backup story. It's, uh, it raises important questions about the role of technology in our lives and uh, the government. It really does. Now, you have a degree in cyborg anthropology. It seems like this story is right up your alleyway. Is that a phrase? Sure. I don't mean your butthole. <laughs> I didn't take it that way. But good. Okay. Good. Um, <laughs> it's a really simple story. Nick Fury ends up fighting five versions of himself that are all robot duplicates of himself. And he beats them all up and then he finds out that they're controlled by another robot version of himself. Mm-hmm. So I guess one of my questions is, I get that they have life model decoys. Six seems excessive. Like, wouldn't you just need like one? Well, there probably was one, and then it became sentient, and then it it said, just made I other versions of himself build more me, so I can kill the original me and take oh. over. Things. I was wondering it also if the main bad Nick Fury robot mm-hmm. was the Nick Fury robot that Scorpio had partially reprogrammed. Mm-hmm. Never really gets addressed. I think the bigger concern that I had is that this Clay Quartermain guy seems like a real fuckwad. I really didn't like that guy. Well, because there was the LMD version of him, too. There was an LMD version of him at the beginning, and then the actual version of him at the end, and they both have this creepy-ass shit-eating grin on their face. He reminded me of um, that dude that's, like, been in a bunch of B-movies in the 70s as a bad guy, who I want to say is has been in... Um, who made those bad movies? Russ... Oh, Russ Myers? Myers movies, yeah, like the Mudhoney bad guy. Yeah. I don't know the guy's name, but I know who you're talking about. Get me out of this glory hole, that guy. That's Kirk Douglas said that. Oh, shit. It's not Kirk Douglas. (laughs) It's 
And that wasn't a Russ Myers movie. That was 20,000 Leagues Beneath the Sea. Oh, we had just, I think we had had a doubleheader that evening. Ah, uh, maybe. Oh, man. Too many Cordells. <laughs> that guy is going to be so stoked to be compared to Kirk Douglas. Sorry, Kirk. <laughs> My bad. I mean, don't get me wrong. They probably both very badly want to get out of that glory hole. <laughs> Which we should clarify, I think, as a submarine. Submarine prison, yeah. I guess, is what Kirk Douglas was referring to in the movie 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when he starts uh, kicking and screaming at the top of his lungs, let me out of this glory hole. I never knew that's what they called submarines. I don't know that it is. <laughs> <laughs> what were we talking about? Uh, what a fuck no oh, Clay Quartermain is. Quartermain. The, the other weird thing about even the life model decoy version of him is... A surprising amount of the Nick Fury robots were wearing their underpants and nothing else. Mm -hmm. So one would assume that the life model decoy is a naked version of a person mm -hmm. that is built in a robot. And it is like a full anatomically accurate robot version of a person that then they put clothes on. But the quarter main LMD opens up a chest panel that is part of his clothes. So in his case, it looks like the clothing is a part of the robot. Mm -hmm. What's going on there? Well, maybe the Fury bots just come with those black um, short shorts on. Okay, so they are not... So they, th those guys wouldn't put on clothes over their, well, not over their Speedos because we see other Nick Fury LMDs are wearing... Like suits or his spy outfit. So with those ones, the clothes are part of their thing. And then these Nick Fury robots are made to infiltrate specifically underwear situations that Nick Fury might find himself in. Maybe. Or maybe it's just like these guys don't have a mission specific need to wear a certain outfit. I'm not going to waste my time. You don't think they have a mission specific need to wear underpants? Well, no, I'm saying maybe the undies are part of the... That's just how they produce them. Hmm. So we made the first few anatomically correct, but that was causing all kinds of trouble. So <laughs> now they just. So from now on, the Clay Quartermain specifically, we're going to put them, they're wearing clothes all the time. Can't even take them off. Nope. Or they have like a union suit thing where there is a clothing flap that covers up their, their innard bits. It did seem like that robot was super stoked about like flashing his robot guts at. Nick Fury. It seemed weird. Like it was the kind of thing he does all the time. Mm -hmm. Weird shit, man. Yeah. It's like a funny joke. Like, hey, you know, well, you guys thought I was human, but... Another reason why these dudes might be in their underpants all the time is that the writer of the series is maybe they aren't underpants, maybe they are wrestling trunks. The writer of this story, Scott Edelman, went on, he, he wrote a bunch of Marvel comics in the 70s. He created that character, the Scarecrow for Marvel Comics, not to be confused with the Scarecrow from DC Comics, although they look very similarly, which is to say, like Scarecrows. Mm -hmm. He also wrote some Omega the Unknown and some Captain Marvel. But in the 80s, he went on to found the pro wrestling magazine Rampage <laughs> and wrote some unauthorized biographies of Stone Cold Steve Austin and China. No shit. Yeah. So maybe he's just a wrestling fan and those are supposed to be wrestling trunks that Nick Fury is wearing where he's underpants wrestling four different versions of himself. Yeah, that's probably what they do just to train the robots how to fight. Yeah, good policy. Mm -hmm. Must have been weird for Nick Fury to fight a bunch of like mostly naked versions of himself. Like that must have been a real mind fuck. He played it cool. He did. Have 
You ever had to fight anybody when you were naked? Uh, no. You? Kinda. Really? When I was living at the old apartment, when me and Lisa were living there, I mean, it wasn't really a fight, but a guy who just walked into my apartment, who was on a lot of acid, I think, Oh, that, and um, was, just kind of wandered, came like pretty deep into the apartment. I hadn't had the door locked. It was like four o'clock in the morning and I was, uh, I was naked, hanging out, watching TV <laughs> and he was in the hallway. He's like, Hey, how's it going? And I was like, you can't be in here. He had walked right by Lisa who was sleeping in bed because like the entrance to the apartment was through the bedroom. And so I was naked and I, I pushed him all the way out of the apartment because he was not responding to words. Oh man. Um, and, like, he was like, hey, what's going on? And I was like, you know, you need to leave. But, yeah. So, like, that was, I mean, it wasn't really a fight, but I, I pushed a guy out of my apartment a good, like, 40 feet while I was naked. That's about as close to Eastern Promises as any of us <laughs> hope to get. <laughs> That's the name of that movie with that fight scene, right? I think so. I haven't seen it, but I, I've, oh. I've, I've, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. No, I mean, it wasn't, like, a battle scene, but I was just like, this is not... A condition I want to be in an altercation during. This is weird. Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds pretty awkward. So, I mean, I guess good job Nick Fury that he stripped down to his undies when he had his clever plan near the end of the comic. Mm-hmm. I did witness a similar thing at a house I lived at with a bunch of people once when one of the roommates was taking a shower and the other roommate was in the bathroom flushing the toilet repeatedly. And oh, no. One roommate in the shower. Like as a prank? Yeah. Okay. would be like, hey, whoever's flushing the toilet, stop doing that. And the other guy would be like, okay. And then he'd flush <laughs> it. And then the guy in the shower got mad did at he the tackle other guy him? and he tackled him. And then they ran around the house throwing, uh, there was a bottle of shampoo and oh, a bar of soap. Man. Did the Benny Hill theme just start automatically playing? I am really sad to say it did not. That's too bad. Mm -hmm. That's why you need an MP3 version of Yakety Sax on your phone at all times. Yep. Next time. Next time. You ready to get into the minutia? Sure. All right. Rick, would you mind singing us in? We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Corey, it is time to debut our new category. Oh shit, what is that? Behold or be gone. Oh, I forgot. That's okay. We hadn't established what it was yet. Here is what behold or be gone is. <laughs> I will bring up a question that was triggered by an instance in this comic book, and you will tell me whether it should behold or be gone. Okay. And I will tell you at the end whether you are correct. <laughs> Here's this week's Behold or Be Gone. Okay. If you could have several life model decoys of yourself, would you? Behold or be gone? Life model decoys of yourself. Behold? That Wait, do I control them? Or are you they going to get weird like the Nick Fury ones? I mean, you can't rule it out. I'm going to say behold, because that could be pretty useful. They could do a lot of work. Hmm. They could do a lot of work. It would make things easier for you. You would also have to see what you actually look like all of the time and be confronted with that. No, they can go other places and do things and I just get paid, right? And you have to, if you're, if you're going to be in charge of them, they're going to need some face time with you and vice versa. So you're going to have to deal with robot versions of yourself that might turn evil, but they might just do work for you. Mm, They don't eat or otherwise require. They don't require. But they can. I mean, it is established in this book that... They can eat, sleep, and even die. Well, I don't think that's exactly what's established. 
Well, the 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 final these LMDs one. do anything a human can: eat, drink, sleep. Heck, I bet they can even. Yeah, but then on the next page, there's the thing about dying. Well, somebody else says die. I think he was gonna say they can fuck. That's what I thought too, and then I read the die part. Oh, I think I maybe skipped that part. It's like a match to action cut in a movie. So you are saying, yeah, fuck robot duplicates of yeah. yourself. Behold. Yeah, I'm gonna make them all drive uh, Ubers or something. All right, you're a more confident man than I am. In your case, you are correct. In my case, it is be gone. No. No. You don't want six robo hubs? No, I don't. I don't want any robo hubs. They could mail the mail the mow the lawn. I don't mind mowing the lawn. I understand. I am a lazy man. I want to do as little work as possible. But what I want even more than that is to never have to confront the reality of my appearance, let alone on a regular <laughs> basis. I have spent a lot of time developing a self-image that has virtually no basis in reality. I don't like photographs shitting on that, let alone exact 3D replicas of myself. That would just freak me out. You could put them all in different colored cool tracksuits and sunglasses and hats and shit like that, and then they'd look cool. I hadn't, hadn't thought of the backup dancer possibilities. Dude, there are so many possibilities. Behold! <laughs> Robots. Well done, Corey. And that was the first segment of Behold or Be Gone. I like this one. Yeah, I think it has legs. Sartorially speaking, which elements of fashion in this issue did you feel were worthy of note? I liked uh, modern-day Dollar Bill's getup. I can't remember if it's the same thing he was wearing before, but... The purple turtleneck with the Dollar Bill sign on it? Yeah, but it was like a super thick, like a sweater, cable-knit like turtleneck a... thing. Yeah. But almost like a mock turtleneck, a deep cranberry color, and some nice brown slacks with big green sunglasses and a big yellow beard. It's a good look. It's kind of a good look. I feel like it's overkill to have that thick a beard and the cable-knit sweater that's a turtleneck. He's, maybe he's just one of those people that's cold all the time. Or has absolutely no neck whatsoever. I feel like either the beard or the mock turtleneck could address that situation, but using both in concert seems like overkill. Hmm. The element of fashion I found most interesting is the Atlantean soldiers. I hesitate to call them uniforms because they're all so different. There's one guy who has like gold plate armor, almost like Iron Man style. There's one guy who has armor and a blue cape that makes him look kind of like DC's demon character, only purple. Mm -hmm. There's another guy who just is wearing like a Kirby New Gods outfit. It makes me wonder if those different outfits are to denote different ranks. Like, it seems a lot more efficient in a lot of ways than just having an extra stripe on your sleeve or an extra little, like on Star Trek, they have the little extra buttons on their collar. Like or a little star for what kind of general you are, I think it would give you a lot more impetus to rise through the ranks of the Atlantean army if you knew that, you know, if I uh, if I get this promotion, I get a gold suit of armor. That would be pretty badass. Or to create a sense of engagement and foster creativity, maybe the army barracks just have, like, this giant, like, costume room. They've just got and a trunk full like, of clothes, right, like they're a right, fucking boys. sketch comedy group. Yep, get to it. <laughs> <laughs> We're putting on a show! They all run in there and... I mean, that would up. fit with the traditional Atlantean sense of drama. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that might be the case. Either way, some very interesting looks from these uh, Atlantean soldiers. 
Yeah, gold armor guy probably always goes first. Like you got to be fast to get that oh, one. Everybody man. wants that. Yeah. Corey, what was your favorite sound effect? Oh, that's easy. My favorite sound effect was on page 15, and it's the noise that it makes when Hulk jumps off a thing floating in the ocean. And I had goes, the same one. Squoosh! <laughs> yeah, squoosh was a lot of fun. There were some other good ones in there, but really, I don't even remember what they are, because uh, they all got blown out of the water, literally, mm. by squoosh! Yep. Pretty great. Good job, Hulk. I mean, bad job, actually, but good job making <laughs> a good sound. In this issue, as in every issue of The Defenders, there is one character who has to act contrary to his previously established character or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. In the immortal words of the Fat Boys from Crush Groove, they've just got to be a sucker. In this issue, who was your sucker? In this issue, my sucker was the Incredible Hulk because I think it's pretty well established as canon that he is not somebody that suffers fools or insult, and Kyle is belligerent. And in his face, real bad, at the end. And Hulk's just like, yeah, whatever. And doesn't kick his ass. He doesn't kick his ass, but he is kind of just like, fuck you, and I'm ignoring you. And you're not the boss of me. There's several instances in the past in which, like, they've motivated Hulk to follow them or, or do other shit by just being a little bit annoying to him. Yeah, I do understand that. But at this point, I feel like a big part of the Hulk's character is how mercurial he is. So... Throughout the course of this issue, he acts in a number of different ways. And I was tempted by that a couple of times because he does go back and forth really quickly between his emotions and what he does in situations. The one that made me the most inclined to choose him as my sucker was the degree to which he thought things through when he was angry and then thought, Fishmen help friends that got hurt. Fishmen can breathe in water, not like Hulk and others from above. Where are others who need air like Hulk? Maybe hurt. Maybe need Hulk's help. Hulk will find others. This is right after Hulk tried to smash the water. I feel like that's a bit much in way of a pivot. But at the same time, him going back and forth between thinking, these guys are Hulk's friends, and fuck these guys, Hulk's angry, Hulk should jump off, and Hulk will smash them, and Hulk doesn't even care about this shit. I feel like he does that enough at this point that it's kind of hard to choose him as a sucker because part of his previously established character at this point is that he vacillates really quickly between being angry and being friendly. I decided to go with Namor because at one point in this comic book, Namor actually says, It is not wise to provoke the Hulk. Ha! <laughs> <laughs> uh, no it isn't, but dude, two issues ago was it even? that long ago where you just backhanded the dude for no fucking reason and said get out of my way behemoth well i think that speaks to namor's character and that he learned a thing which is also contrary to his previously established character oh touche okay yeah you got the better choice here i liked namor a lot in this issue but i i felt like the degree to which he never got furious when his people were being threatened when the Hulk was destroying the ship. This is a guy who tried to destroy New York several times for relatively minor slights. The fact that his people actually being attacked by a nuclear bomb did galvanize him into action, but didn't seem to piss him off or make him fly off the handle. I'm like, whoa, that's not Namor. So that's why Namor was my sucker. Yeah, all fair. 
What was your pie not made out of steel? What words did you enjoy in this issue, much like you would enjoy a pie, were it not made out of steel? There were some choice words in this issue, to be sure. There were indeed. I'm going to pick a, a tiny bit from, I think it was on page one, that we talked a little bit earlier about the way that Hellcat deals with a stressful situation is by uh, bravado and humor. Mm-hmm. And uh, I like the part that she makes a pun when they're all in the sinking ship and she says, I think we're in over our heads. Pretty good. Not just that. She makes a double pun because it's holy mackerel. Yeah. The ship sprung a leak. Frankly, folks, I think we're in this way over our heads. Ding. Yeah. Pretty good. Pretty good. There was a lot of really flowery prose in this that I really enjoyed. I went with one that was again near the beginning. And I think this one's my favorite, although it was rivaled by something from the backup story. There is a piece of Namor dialogue, which I talked that he was kind of out of character in this, but one way in which he was not out of character was his sense of drama and nearly melodrama. Armed with the sea-begotten strength which is my heritage, I shall stem this inrushing tide. Mm. That's some good Namoring. That is pretty good name-warring. The one that rivaled that was, I think it came up briefly before, when Nick Fury is, in my mind, speculating as to whether the robot duplicates of himself fuck. <laughs> he says, So I've finally been snookered, huh? I should have guessed it would happen eventually. Those LMDs can do anything a human can. Eat, drink, sleep. Heck, I bet they can even... And he is interrupted before he can say, fuck. <laughs> but those are my favorite words. Good choices. Real pie's not made out of steel there. Oh, yeah. I wonder if in the robot version of American Pie, the robot Jason Biggs fucks a pie that is made out of steel. I think they would have to. Yeah, that's what robots like. Mm-hmm. In this issue, who was the best defender and who was the worst offender? I had is the best Hellcat because she cracked me up and uh, she saved Nighthawk at great danger to herself. Mm -hmm. um, that was pretty selfless. I also had as the backup Namor for holding it down and then in turn saving Hellcat after she had saved Nighthawk. Indeed, I had both of those as potentials and... I think I decided to go with Hellcat as my favorite just for the, in the grand scheme of things, small but very self-sacrificing heroic act of risking her own life to put the air helmet on Nighthawk. I know that's what they say you shouldn't do in airplanes, but... Especially if Kyle Richmond's sitting next to you. Oh yeah, no, they have a special section that it, it, it says, always put on your own air mask so that you can assist those around you before you help them. Unless it's Kyle Richmond, in which case, fuck that guy. Fuck that guy, that's exactly what it says. Yeah, mm. yeah. I think they may have gotten rid of those in the airplanes now that Kyle Richmond is less of a going concern. But in the 70s, it was in every plane. Mm. But the other backup that I had was Valkyrie for completing her enrollment in college. Back on that horse. Good for you, Val. That bit you. Yeah. That's Wait, the expression, what? right? Get back on the horse that bit you. Oh, yeah. Yeah, get back on the horse that bit you. Mm -hmm. And that you rode in on. I don't actually know how the original one goes. Get, just get back just on get the back horse. Just get back on the horse. Yeah. Okay. The horse that threw you, probably. Well, probably. And, and maybe the first part is, like, if you fell off a horse, get back on the horse. Probably. Or 
Or if you fell off the horse, stop fucking around with things that are bad for you. Yeah. Maybe it's, if you fell off the horse, good. That horse's head is too big. You don't think they're uh, nicely proportioned? You think they should have tiny heads like greyhounds? I guess that would be That'd a different be kind creepy. of scary. I'm just saying horses' heads are too big and it's scary. They gotta eat a lot of grass, so they gotta chew a lot. So I yeah, I mean, I'm glad they eat grass, but like, you ever see a horse where it pulls back its lips? Yeah. Terrifying. Horses' heads are too big. Yeah, you don't want to get bit by one, that's for sure. No. You've been bit by many horses. By two ponies, not horses. And <laughs> <laughs> not that many, just two. I th- I, two is many. Considering I've been around three. Right. In my life. Two out of three horses have bitten you. We, we were... <laughs> two out of three ponies. We were in Hood River, which uh, is a, a town outside of outside of Portland. And we were walking and there was a pony like on the sidewalk that little kids were playing with. And I went and I like walked really far like into the street to go around it. And Good my call. friends that I was with were like, what are you doing? And I was like, dude, there's a pony right there. Mm-hmm. And they're like, so? Well, fool me once. Fuck, fuck you. you. Yeah. Fool me twice. Fuck you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, good call, Corey. I went and I got an ice cream cone. And nice. And I walked by the pony again, far away. Nice. Did you eat the ice cream cone at the pony? I did. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Come back when you got some money, pony. Yeah. Jerk. Pony can buy their own goddamn ice cream cone. That's right. <laughs> did we do worst? Uh, Nighthawk was the worst. Nighthawk was objectively the worst. I mean, yeah, we can't at this point consider... Jack Norris, a viable option. He is definitely not on the Defenders at this point, despite appearing in the book in a brief aside, being a dumbass. Mm -hmm. But no, Nighthawk was such a jerk in this. He, as we talked about before, said that, I feel like we're the only people holding this ship together, when they had nothing to do with holding the ship together. When Namor flies them out of the water, rescuing them from drowning... He brings up, apropos of nothing, you know, I used to be able to fly before my jetpack broke. Who gives a fuck? And he yells at the Hulk and tells him, I'm the leader. You need to listen to me. You can't be insubordinate. If films have taught me anything, it is that anyone accusing someone of insubordination is a jerkwad. People who are insubordinate, those are the heroes. It's also likely an ineffective leadership technique, especially with the Hulk. So, so bad ineffective. Job. Yeah. Bad job, Kyle. Bad job, Kyle. You know what I'd say if I saw Kyle trying to do something? Hmm. Bad job. Bird's a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> he gets called Featherface. Yeah. That was pretty good. Look at that fucking idiot. <laughs> bird. Stupid bird. Fuck you, Kyle. Oh, it feels good to get that out. Yeah. It's nice to yell at birds. What was your favorite panel? Oh, boy. The art in here, as you mentioned, was a delight. Mm-hmm. Real treat. I had a, a toss-up between the opening uh, little inset panel on page one that I called uh, Tumbling Heroes, mm. where the water is flooding in and everybody's upside down and it's topsy-turvy and it's crazy. Real good. And then I also liked page 11 at the movies, the top panel <laughs> that's Richie Rich, I mean Dollar Bill, and Valkyrie sitting on the couch with the projector behind their head making this cool, like, psychedelic halo thing. That is pretty cool. Very artsy. The theater that I currently work at, the other day, we had an issue with the projection. We are showing the new Spider-Man movie there. And a spider descended from 
directly in front of the projector. Oh, wow. And uh, people came in and complained. And I had to throw wet rags at the ceiling to try to get the spider away from the Spider-Man projector. Oh, irony. It was pretty great. You couldn't tell it was a spider in front of the thing on the big screen? You, You could tell that there was a dot that was on a thread that was descending in front of the projector oh, that's too bad if you could like it was all blown up and leggy yeah no you couldn't see its legs for sure did you get to tell the audience sorry there was a spider i mean no they don't generally like it when you interrupt the movie to make announcements for them dude you're on your way out i'm saying there's <laughs> opportunities you're right and there was a missed one my favorite panel gosh it came down to two for me one of them was one where I talked about the fact that I did not like the words in this panel, but the panel that I call the Visible Russians, Mm. it's these atomic glowing innards of codename Fuckface and Tanya as they are holding hands and surrounded by all of this lightning and clouds and nonsense, but they're glowing skeletons and the outline of their frames. It's just really cool looking. Mm-hmm. And I, I liked that panel, the way it looked at least, a lot. My other favorite panel, for very different reasons, was from the backup story, where it is Underpants Nick Fury leapfrogging unconscious Underpants Nick Fury, <laughs> and it's just a funny <laughs> panel. That's damn silly. And yelling, I was hoping you'd do that, because mm. now it's just you and me. I really wish he had said, because now it's just me and me. But, pretty good. You know, I just realized that he's wearing boots, and the other underpants Nick Furies aren't wearing boots. Yeah, it seems like that would be a pretty easy way for bad robot Nick Fury, Mm -hmm. bad mastermind robot Nick Fury, to differentiate betwixt the two of them. But, maybe Nick Fury knows his own mind well enough to know, I never notice boots. Mm. I don't know. Either way, it's a neat panel. Good panel. Corey, we both know that the Hulk rules. But in this issue, what were the Hulk's rules? The Hulk's rules in this issue are, and I think I've used this one in the past, but it really comes down to trust your gut. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. If you don't like water, smash the water. Don't go to Atlantis. (laughs) It's a bad fucking idea. It is literally under the water. That is a very good point. Hulk hates the water. Hulk does hate the water. The rule that I had the Hulk learn is real leadership is getting people to believe in you. Can't just be demanded. He learned that because, well, a couple of reasons. Fucking Nighthawk shrieking that he's in charge and must be respected. But also, through some kind of a time portal or something, Hulk had found a copy of Larry Bird's autobiography, Drive! (laughs) Which explicitly states that message. Mm. And Hulk really internalized that. So, the Hulk's rule is, you should read Larry Bird's autobiography, Drive. Yeah, I probably found a portal. Because hmm. the biography came out in 1989. Mm-hmm. So, it was maybe even Smart Hulk was reading it. Yeah. It could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, Smart Hulk would have read it in 89, but because of the portal. Well, it's the whole space-time problem right when you start yeah. moving around you just never know right. and you're back yeah. in the 70s and you read drive yeah happens I hear all the time. oh old story in the book yep. tale as old as time 
Oh, mm-hmm. I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that's the Hulk's rules. <laughs> Careful of portals. Trust your gut. Read Larry Bird's autobiography, Drive. Corey, let's write some wongs. All right. In the year of our Lord, 1977, and the month of our Lord, December, what wongs needed writing? Yeah, so among many of Wong's various philanthropic interests was helping out with uh, deprogramming oh. of people that have uh, been subjected to uh, to cults and, and other other things like that. Oh my. Yeah, and so he was actually in Hollywood doing some, some outreach and uh, came across a young and very troubled uh, John Travolta. Oh, who was getting pretty deep into Scientology at this point and was having, you know, kind of a little bit of a, a crisis with how to deal with it. And uh, and so Wong was meeting with him, and uh, they both got to talking about the vital importance of, of movement and being in touch with your body and uh, dance oh. as a way to do this came up. So, you know, Wong obviously has lots of martial training and really good with knowing how to move his body around and had some pretty pretty sick moves oh you from, don't have to tell yeah me. from the disco days and so he taught uh, taught a few of those to jt and um luck would have it that that was also at the time that uh travolta was working on uh the saturday night fever oh movie so he was able to basically take what uh wong had taught him to help deal with the scientology stuff Put it to work on the big screen. And didn't use it to deal with the Scientology stuff, because he definitely stuck with that. It didn't work out, yeah. He went, <laughs> yeah. He went right back. That movie made way too much money. Gotcha. And Elrond was like, no, man, uh-uh. Yeah, you got, you got thetans, you gotta, man. You gotta pay the piper. But at any rate, that was a small part of what Wong was trying to write in December of 1977. Good for Wong. Mm-hmm. Gotta make that effort. Did his best. Sick dance moves. Sick dance. It was a very musical month. Wong. In part because of what you said, and also in part because Dr. Strange was starting to feel a little bit old. Mm. He was worried that he was not quite as in tune with youth culture as he had previously believed himself to be, which, to be fair, he never was, even slightly. Not even as a youth? No, no. He was a real Wilford Brimley. He was never a youth. (laughs) Forever 65. (laughs) Forever 65. But Doctor Strange was like, I still know what's cool. I know what the youth like. I remember earlier this year, the name Elvis came up quite a lot. Wong, Wong, get me some tickets. We'll go see Elvis. That's what the kids like. Wong tried to tell Doctor Strange that Elvis had been dead for more than half a year at this point. But Doctor Strange would not listen. So Wong decided, okay, well... Elvis Costello is going to be performing on Saturday Night Live later this month. I'll get us some tickets to that. That'll placate him. I honestly don't think he'll know the difference. So he called in some favors from the Saturday Night Live cast, who he had helped out in the past. And I uh, got them some pretty good tickets. They went. And Elvis Costello started to play the song Less Than Zero, which was about a British politician. And then halfway through, he pivoted and said, No, no, there's no need to play that song. And launched into the song Radio, which was about corporate broadcast culture. It got him banned from being on Saturday Night Live. It really pissed off Lorne Michaels. And Elvis Costello was not allowed to 
perform on Saturday Night Live and again until 1989, uh, when perhaps Lorne Michaels had been inspired by Larry Bird's autobiography, Drive, <laughs> and uh, was learning something about what real leadership was. But the point is that uh, Wong was really inspired by this this fiery diatribe against corporate radio broadcasts. And so after they saw the show, Dr. Strange was like, I thought he would sing about hound dogs. I wanted to hear a song about doggies. I, I don't care for the, this Elvis fellow's new direction. But Wong had a different takeaway, which was, man, yeah, you know, I'm sick of the corporate culture surrounding radio broadcasts and everybody's just doing what they're told. And so he got really involved and he helped, from behind the scenes, launch the pirate radio station, WFAT, uh, 1620, in New York City later that month. Wow. And that was the Wong that he was writing. Good job, Wong. Good job, Wong. Good job, Larry Bird, with your 1989 autobiography, Drive. If you would like to get into touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at gmail.com. If you would like to support us in a financial way, that would certainly be appreciated. Uh, the way you can do that is by going to patreon.com slash ttwasteland. If you do, you get access to a monthly show that Lisa and I do called What the Duck, a podcast most foul but with a W because he's a duck, that's the full name of the show. And a bunch of extra bonus material that's on there. Some videos that I made, some uh, podcasts that Corey and I have recorded specifically for our donors. And it's a nice time. And uh, might be out of work for a little bit, and it'd be nice to uh, have a safety net there. <laughs> if you'd like to leave us a review, that's a nice thing to do, too. It is. So you can do that at wherever fine podcasts are found. And reviewed. Yes. If you would like to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, LinkedIn. Oh, I didn't do that yet. Oh, uh, you'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> then, you know, do those things. That's fun. Uh, Lisa runs an Instagram page for us. Oh, and speaking of Lisa, uh, if you do not already tune in to Jane Miles Explain the X-Men, that is certainly something that you should do. It's a heck of a show. Okay. And also, in a couple of weeks, Lisa's going to be a guest host. So, uh, you know, check that out. I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say. Likewise. And that's the way the cookie goes to town. <laughs> yeah. Yep. All right. Very common expression that we all know about cookies. So, thanks for listening, unless you're a bird. Fuck you, birds! I'm giving birds the birds right now. Double birds. Yep, double birds for birds. Go fly into some wind. Yeah. <laughs> Bird idiot. Bye. Bye. And they know it. Twitter feed, the Wilford Brimley cocoon line, all it does is track which celebrities have passed the exact age that Wilford Brimley was when they started film when he started filming cocoon. Guess how old Wilford Brimley was when they started filming cocoon? Mm, 64. No. Lower? I take a big jump. 54. Lower.
What? 49. How did... He just was one of those. He was one of those. Like, he was... Old, young people. Yeah, he was like... I forget what it was. It was like 45 when they filmed The Thing. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. Yeah. He used to be a rodeo star. (laughs) And I guess just like... Then he he got too big to ride horses. (laughs) And so he took up blacksmithing. And he, like, was a consultant on some movies. And then they're like, Hey, why we put you in a movie? And he's like, All right. Diabetes. And then a star was born. Wow, the <laughs> yep. Wilford Brimley story. <laughs> yep, pretty good, huh? That is that is heartwarming. Mm-hmm. The Wilford Brimley story, or why'd they have to make these horses so goddamn fragile? Mm. Gosh, do you think he's he must have looked like 21 when he was in, like, 8th grade. Diapers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet, he, I don't think he ever looked 21. I bet he just looked like a smaller old man. Oh, like one of those ugly kids, and you're just like, oh, they'll yeah. grow out of it. Yeah, but no, they'll just... Leaned in. Yep. There are certain people, I think we've probably talked about before, but like Stalker Channing, like when you see her when she's in her 20s, you're, you're like, something's a little bit off. And you look kind of like you're in your mid-40s. And now she's much older than that, and she still looks like she's in her mid-40s. So, you know, evens out. I wonder what's better. Hmm... To crush your enemies and drive them before you and hear the lamentation of the women. No, that's what's good in life. Oh, okay. I'm um, just saying, is it better to age naturally or to like just get stuck in one and stay there? Oh, gosh. I mean, I guess it probably depends on what one. Like, like Wilford Brimley is forever 65. <laughs> right. That is the least popular chain of clothing stores in any mall. <laughs> forever, forever 65. <laughs> Just high-waisted pants, suspenders. Nice shiny shoes. <laughs> you ready? Yeah. Just, just I, How are we going to monetize all of these good ideas I that we have? Oh, man.